This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture, and today our topic is economics, theology that works, and our guest is Greg Forrester, who probably has uh, racked up more time on The Table podcast than any other single expert that we have uh, interviewed up to this point. This is, I think, our fifth in a series of uh, Theology of Work uh, podcasts, Greg, and we really do appreciate your willingness to be part of this. Well, I've uh, had a great time, and I appreciate being on, and I'm looking forward to some sort of pen or something that you can give me for, uh, <laughs> for achievement. That's right, yeah, so many hours. I guess I, Frequent flyer miles, I guess, is, is kind of the equivalent, but anyway. Yeah, frequent talker miles. That's right. Um, w- our goal today is to kind of wrap up this document that we've been through in, in multiple parts and to kind of pull everything together. This is part of the Economic Wisdom Project that is a part of the – Oikonomia Network and the Kern Family Foundation. And just to remind people, uh, when we talk about economy, uh, we're talking about a term that comes from a Greek word, uh, oikonomeo or oikonomia, depending on whether you want the noun or the, or the form of the verb. And it basically means to manage the house, um, to take care of the household. And you've got suggestions right here at the conclusion about things that the theology of work movement uh, hasn't done. So why don't we do a little summary here. Where in your mind does the theology of work movement stand, and what does it need to kind of uh, move into a more robust and, and mature kind of engagement? Well, I think it is uh, at an impressive point where for about a century it has been growing uh, in response to both religious changes um, in the American and English-speaking worlds uh, as uh, people have grown more and more concerned about secularization of public spaces, uh, that, that underlying sort of anxiety that uh, faith is being relegated to a private realm. Uh, and as the sort of the, the dilemmas and the pressures have pushed people more and more to challenge the uh, model of the church that we've inherited in which religious professionals deal primarily with church-related activities uh, and don't uh, speak very intentionally into uh, the issues of work in the workplace. So I think after a long period of gestation, it is now blooming in a really impressive way. A lot of people who are not traditional faith and work people are beginning to realize the importance of this uh, agenda. They're beginning to embrace it. They're seeing that it's about much more than just sort of five bullet points for how to do your work in a different way. Uh, but it really it gets to very deep issues of the kingdom of God and how we manifest our faith in all of our lives. Um, and I think this is challenging the movement with some very significant growth needs uh, that I think it is beginning to realize it has, uh, but that we're not really on the radar even five years ago or ten years ago, 
when the movement was not yet blossoming in this uh, big way. Uh, I think one of those major needs is to uh, speak to a wider variety of workers. So in the past, the faith and work movement has mostly attracted uh, white collar, middle class management, and a middle management uh, and above type workers. Uh, and, and it has mostly grown to serve them. And that was a natural result of the situation historically. Uh, those were the people who were able to create and sustain the movement. Those were the people who had opportunities. Uh, and honestly, a lot of the movement sustains itself through things like book sales. And, and so, you know, if, if, that's, if that's where your sustenance is, you kind of have to serve that constituency. But I think there's a growing appreciation of the fact that the movement does not adequately serve blue-collar workers uh, and people who are in non-traditional areas of service. Um, it doesn't speak very much to people who don't think of themselves as in the marketplace traditionally understood. Uh, so teachers, for example, and stay-at-home moms uh, are not well served in most cases by existing forms of the faith and work movement uh, because the faith and work movement talks about the marketplace and many of them don't think of themselves as part of a marketplace. Uh, and and uh, the movement has simply not thought about stay-at-home moms as a faith and work uh, arena, but it very much is. Uh, so that's one major need, and I think that uh, we're just at the beginning point of people attempting to reach those audiences, uh, and we have not yet discovered, I think, all the issues that are going to be involved in making those connections. Uh, we're starting to. One thing that I've been concerned about um, is that the faith and work movement has uh, very much uh, followed a method of starting with uh, kind of God cares about your work 101. Uh, you know, work is good, work is an opportunity to serve God, God is with you in your work, uh, work was there before the fall, work is not a curse, and it's just, it's very, it's optimistic, it's hopeful, it's got lots of sort of bright, positive stuff about work, uh, and a lot of people, when, when they hear that, they just roll their eyes and say, yeah, that sounds like a nice theory, but you should try doing my job. Mm -hmm. uh, their experience of work is very negative, it's, it's broken, they're dealing with all kinds of just wrong situations, toilsome situations, suffering. Uh, and I think the faith and work movement, without losing its, its grounding in the Christian virtue of hope, which is essential, uh, and that sort of theological imperative to affirm the goodness of the creation order, because if you don't affirm the goodness of the creation order, you're going to go down all kinds of wrong theological roads, and that ends very badly. Uh, but without losing that, we need to find better ways to speak to people whose starting point is brokenness and toil and darkness, and in many cases, evil and injustice that they experience in their, in their work. Uh, we have to be able to start there with people. Yeah, it's it, it's an interesting question. You know, I'm I'm reminded of the video that I just got that I think you all were partially responsible for helping produce called "Going on Vocation," and, and uh, the interesting thing about that is uh, the, just to show you the array of vocations that were discussed in that. In, in that video, it seems to me I remember there was a beekeeper in that group. There was uh, a stay-at-home dad. 
uh, stay, we don't talk about stay-at-home moms, much less stay-at-home dads. Um, and a, a lot of discussion about kind of the average everyday worker. I think there were there were waitresses who were interviewed uh, who who do you know who, who just wait tables and that kind of thing. Kind of an example of of filling in the gap that you're talking about here. Yes, uh, and I was very pleased to see that. I take that as an example of the the movement uh, branching out in new ways and uh, and finding new ways to do these kinds of things. So, if someone were interested in in getting a hold of that video, because I do think it's a nice little summary of theology of work, kind of looking at it from the worker's point of view, um, how would they get a hold of that video? Uh, just Google going on vocation, and uh, you may have to correct Google. It might it might think you were looking for going on vacation, <laughs> uh, but the title is going on vocation. There's a website. Uh, it's it, it should be available through uh, all the major sellers, uh, you know, Amazon and all those services. Okay, so we've dealt with uh, one aspect, which is this including all workers. Another category that's pretty significant is what you have generically called in the piece economic wisdom, but actually you're talking about economic systems. You're thinking about thinking about the economy not just in individualized terms, but in more corporate uh, and, and social and systemic terms, right? Yes. and. It's important to realize when we talk about the economy, we don't mean numbers on spreadsheets. Uh, we don't mean talking heads on TV yelling at each other over public policy. Uh, you know, spreadsheets and numbers and graphs are really important, and I'm all for that. I'm a social scientist myself. That's more my training is. Uh, and political issues, you know, public policy issues is important and legitimate, and we need to have all those discussions. But the economy is not fundamentally those things. The economy is millions of people exchanging their work with each other. And when we do our work, we are embedded in this uh, big web of relationships where I do my work and uh, you purchase the product and you do your work and I purchase the product and we're connected to each other through economic exchange. And this is one of the primary ways that God connects us to other human beings is through our work, uh, through co-worker relationships and also through marketplace exchange. And uh, the faith and work movement uh, has partaken of a general tendency towards individualistic uh, experience where uh, we want to think about how do I experience my work and how do I serve God with my work and uh, how do I deal with my problems in my work, uh, which is all, those are all legitimate questions, but we need to understand that we are social creatures. We're made to be embedded in these relationships. We're made, uh, we're made for culture and we're made for society. And so when we work, we are a part of these uh, systems of exchange. And that's a really fundamental part of how we work and why we work. Uh, we don't just want the person on the factory floor uh, standing there pulling the lever on the machine thinking about uh, how do I do my job with honesty and diligence and virtue and all those things. We also want that person to be asking, what does this lever do? How does this lever have an impact on my community? Uh, and, and if you know what the product you're making is and why people want to buy it, then you can evaluate, is this a good thing that I'm doing? Am I involved in contributing value to my community through the, uh, the product or the service that I'm helping to provide? Uh, and then uh, if 
if technological change or globalization uh, takes that job away from you, if you are able to think in terms of how you serve customers and how you serve the community, you'll be much better equipped to ask, uh, okay, the, the previous situation I was in, the job that I had is gone, but my vocation to serve the community has not been taken away. Uh, my occupation, my job, is not the same as my vocation, which is the calling to serve God and neighbor. So how can I now think about other opportunities I might have uh, to contribute value to others? Uh, seeing that system that we're a part of helps us to recover from disruption uh, and from the just general environment of fast-paced change uh, and, in many cases, seeming uh, chaos, uh, which is going to be continuing uh, uh, to be a part of our, our experience of work for, for some time to come. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Now, um, when we when we think about this, what what does this actually require? I mean, I, I don't see theologians necessarily writing in these areas. That it seems to me this is this is a request for Christian economists and Christian sociologists to kind of chime in and and apply their expertise to to these areas that that they understand in a way and study in a way that others don't. Yeah, I think we need both. We need theologians to write thoughtfully about economic systems and practices and realities, and we need uh, Christian economists to consider and write about the uh, theological, moral, and metaphysical roots of their discipline. Uh, and in the Oikonomia Network, we've begun some of those conversations, and it's still at, it's still at an early stage, but I'm very encouraged about it. Uh, we're doing some important reintegrating of intellectual questions that have been separated into different silos uh, in a way that harms both fields. Uh, and so I think on the one hand, we need to take seriously the, the moral and transcendent nature of the universe we live in, uh, that all human activity is morally freighted. There's no uh, morally neutral activity. There's no morally neutral social systems or institutions. Uh, and in fact, uh, the unseen world has a dramatic effect on our daily experience, and we need we need to understand uh, scripture, and we need to understand uh, the natural revelation as well, uh, and and understand our lives in that light. On the other hand, uh, we need to take seriously the integrity of the creation order that God has given us. So uh, we need to see economists not as sort of bean counters. Uh, who are wedded necessarily to a truncated metaphysic, 
uh, and sort of dismiss their contribution on grounds that many of them in the past have been sort of uh, aggressively uh, resistant to theology and metaphysics. Uh, but we need to recognize that many of them are not that way and that many of them welcome a theological and metaphysical perspective on their discipline. And because God has created uh, the creation order with integrity, that it is not chaotic, that it, is ra that it works in a way that's rationally intelligible, the human mind is able to explore and discover how creation works, and the human will is able to take meaningful action within that creation order. And that means that science is an important part of how we discover uh, uh, what God has done and is doing in the world, because science's job is to investigate uh, that creation order, which does have an intelligible uh, orderliness to it. Uh, and bringing together the people who have a systematic knowledge of God's Word and the people who have a systematic knowledge of this particular aspect of the creation order, that is economic activity, uh, is, I think, going to produce major fruit uh, for, the, uh, for the church in the, in the generation to come. You know, I, I attended an event at, at Southwestern Seminary. This has now been, oh, probably a year and a half ago. Again, something sponsored by the Kern Family Foundation, in which there were uh, economists and, uh, and New Testament scholars meeting together talking about uh, how Scripture hand, handles the topic of money and possessions. And uh, the uh, economists who presented uh, because they had a theological interest, really uh, made for a, a completely different kind of conference than most of the conferences that I attend, because of the way in which uh, money and and the impact of money and the impact of, uh, of thinking through what an expanded economy does for people. Um, one of the presentations was a dis was a discussion of distinguishing between greed and self interest versus flourishing, and how uh, how possessions can help with that, and the way in which since the Industrial Revolution really our economic world has expanded in a way that has given access to, uh, to, more, to more people. Um, all of that is stuff that I don't remember ever having a class in, in seminary that ever discussed any of those topics or made us think about them at all. But they're very, very – it's a very important practical angle on the conversation, it seems to me. Yes, and one thing that has encouraged me very much, both from that and, and, and a number of other conferences that we've been involved in in the Oikonomia Network, uh, I've talked to people who've tried to start these conversations in the past, and they are reporting that uh, more recent conversations have been much more fruitful. That ten years ago, when economists and theologians got together, uh, they talked past each other a good deal. Uh, that they were using the same words to mean different things, uh, and it was very difficult to even have uh, a, a, a real meeting of the minds, uh, even so far as to disagree fruitfully, uh, because they were just speaking different languages and their worlds, their mental worlds were not intelligible to one another. Uh, and so it was very slow going. Um, and, and people who have been involved in these uh, things over time are reporting uh, that the more recent conferences have been a lot more fruitful, that we're overcoming some of these language boundaries and we're having a lot more fruitful uh, discussions. So I'm very encouraged about that. Yeah, it's, it, it is an interesting development. Now, the third emphasis that you, you bring that obviously is part of why we're doing these podcasts and, and having these discussions is to pull in pastors and local churches into the conversation and to make sure that they are contributing what they have to offer at, 
as I would see it, is part of an extension of almost a, a thinking about discipleship. Um, uh, is that the point of this third third area with pastors and local churches? I think that's a large part of it. Um, this is central to discipleship because work and the economy are so central to our lives that if that part of our lives remains secularized or unconverted, uh, then Christianity, as I've said on many occasions, borrowing from Mark Green, Christianity becomes a leisure time activity, mm-hmm. uh, something that we do in our off hours, a few, you know, a few hours a week. Uh, I think that getting the local church and the pastor involved is a absolutely critical turning point in the history of the faith and work movement. I'm, I can't say enough about the importance of that. Uh, and let me give you a quick anecdote that I think illustrates how important this is. Uh, I was at a conference last year where a significant leader in the faith and work movement talked about how uh, in the 1940s and 50s after World War II, uh, teenagers and adolescents became a big part of American culture. You had this sort of uh, radical new direction in American culture where teenagers, uh, uh, it, was a, it was a thing now that it never was before. You were expected to have extraordinary experiences during that part of your life, and it, people, the church didn't know how to deal with it. Uh, it caught the church completely by surprise, and so during uh, during that period and shortly after, large parachurch organizations grew up uh, to serve that portion uh, of God's people. You know, the, all the the all the youth oriented organizations, yeah, Youth for Christ, Crusade, Young Life, Campus Crusade, all of yep, those. Yep, they all grow up at that point because the local church did not know what to do. But then later, you saw the emergence of something called the youth pastor. And this was a critical turning point, he said, uh, when the local church began to get its feet under it uh, in terms of how to deal with people as they go through this tumultuous period of life. And the energy and the growth sort of switched, uh, not that these parachurch organizations became unimportant, but that they, uh, they were no longer growing the same way because the growth in how we deal with this shifted to the local church. And he said, uh, now I run a parachurch organization for faith and work, and the only reason my organization exists is because local churches are not helping people make this faith work connection. Hmm. So that's what I really want to see. I don't want my organization to keep growing. I want the local church to take that growth away from me. I want, that lo- I want the local church to figure out how to do faith and work, and then I won't be needed anymore. I want to be put out of business by the local church. <laughs> I was very, very encouraged by that. Uh, and so when my turn at the conference uh, was to get up, I talked about what we're doing in seminaries and local churches. I said, we're working hard to put him right out of business. That's our goal. And he had this big smile, ear-to-ear smile across his face. He loved it. Uh, so I think this, this is, you know, the local church and the pastor are central to how God equips his people. This is the design. This, this is how it's supposed to work. Not that... Not that we want to fall into a sort of, uh, you know, worship of the local church or an idolatry of the local church, but there's also a danger of of neglecting the central role of the pastor in the local church. Uh, Now, when we first started pursuing this, uh, I got warned by a lot of people, now watch out, Uh, the faith and work movement has a lot of anti-clerical people in it. A lot of people who have a chip on their shoulder about the local church because they feel like the local church looks down on the non-clergy, on the people who have business professions, and they feel neglected and they feel wronged, and you're going you're gonna to encounter opposition. 
I have to tell you, I have not encountered that. Uh, what I have encountered are people who feel alienated or estranged from the local church, but when they see the local church coming to the table and saying, hey, we recognize this as a growth area that we need to, we need to get on the ball here, we need to do this, uh, that there, there has not been resentment, there has not been resistance, uh, not much. I mean, I won't say it's perfect, but uh, I've been very, very encouraged by the willingness of people who have been estranged from local churches and from pastors, uh, essentially to let the past be the past and start looking at how do we regrow the connections between economic professionals and religious professionals. Uh, it's a it's a major uh, problem in the church that large numbers of economic professionals are estranged from the local church. This is hurting both the church and the economic professionals. Uh, but I'm very encouraged that uh, I've I've encountered very little resistance to the need to to bring those parties back together. Yeah, and here I think the example of work like uh, Tom Nelson in Kansas City uh, stands out where uh, here's a pastor who's made uh, – who's really taken the initiative to connect with his work people to make sure that his messages connect to life in the workplace in a significant kind of way, drawing them in and drawing the energy that that, that, that brings to a local church, much less to the, the help that that gives to the people who are in the workplace. Uh, Creating a nice synergy between uh, between the church and life, and 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 things like that, and and so his work is, you know, I think, one example of the type of thing that you're talking about. Yes, and I think part of the key, uh, the two say the two key things that Tom models that I have also seen in a number of other pastors who are successful in this. One is that he begins by acknowledging that this is something the church ought to be doing and is not doing or is not doing well. Uh, and I think that overcomes most of the potential ill will on the other side. Essentially, to come to the table and say, you know what, this is the church's job and we have not been doing it or we have not been doing it as well as we need to be doing it. And that's, you know, that's all it takes. That's right. Uh, and I think that that's, a, that's an, a, an, admission, an admission of that kind is essential to reconciliation in any situation where people are, are hurt. Uh, another another key to what I think Tom and other pastors are doing is they're investing time. Uh, that that is a costly investment to spend your time going to people's workplaces and talking to them and listening to them. Uh, and that investment of time is always respected. Uh, particularly, I think uh, uh, economic professionals understand the value of time. Mm -hmm. They understand that if you're willing to put your time into this, you are paying a price for it, and they will they will recognize that and acknowledge it. And I think that has been part of the secret sauce for the pastors who are doing this well. Thanks for listening to the Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu/thetable. Join us next week for part two. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.